Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 17. Have you ever been in a yoga class and the teacher gives you a cue and you're left scratching your head? wondering what did they mean by that? It could be the word choice or the word combination or just a lack of understanding on your part as to what a particular term meant. I get it, it happens. And the way we typically teach, no one can ask a question during class. I mean, they could, but people rarely do. So students can be left wondering. This is probably a common experience of many students. And as teachers, one of our goals should be to use language that's as easily understood by a beginning student as a more experienced one, and to supplement any inside language we use with a more basic term so students can learn the more esoteric word and also know what we mean. Today, I'm going to take you through some cues for fundamental poses so you can listen and hear how the cues sound. Better yet, if you're at home, try the cues out as you listen and see how they feel in your body. Now, a few things before I get into the examples. The first thing, I am not saying my cues are right and the only way that you should articulate the cues for these poses. My cues are just a suggestion And it's my attempt to start a conversation or at least a thought process in your mind as to what is the most effective way to help people move on the mat. The second thing is this. You might wonder, well, how am I supposed to know if my cues are working? If you're saying this is probably the experience of many students, it doesn't sound like you know if it's true, Karen. So that's an interesting point. Let me say, no, I don't have any actual data on how many students feel this way when they take class. But instead, I pose you this, (laughs) no pun intended. As you're teaching, watch your students. Because the best barometer regarding your cues is right in front of you. Are they doing what you suggest or not? Do they look confused, 
distracted, there's a ton you can discern simply by looking at them. If you're lucky, a few people will give you some feedback after class. This is really helpful because it will give you real-time feedback about the cues you give, plus it will give you a chance to ask them some questions too. I always love when people come up and ask me a question after class. And of course, part of my goal is to share any appropriate or applicable information that I can in regards to their question. But I always want to hear more from them. So I ask open-ended questions to get them talking. So one more thing. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to my earlier episode seven on cues, as I'll be referring to some of that content here. I'll also include the link so that episode will be right on the show notes for this episode on my website, barebonesyoga.com. And all you need to do is go to the website, go to the four teachers page, and you'll see um, under that heading on the homepage for teachers, you'll see the podcast listed. And when you click that link, you'll get an index of all the episodes. So let's go through some fundamental poses. Now, as we're going through these, I'm going to focus on the cues, but there are, of course, other things to review for each pose also. Let's break down what we should look at to get a good overall sense of each pose. The first thing is the primary action. Why are we even doing this posture? What benefit do we hope to gain? The second thing is the key actions. What's happening in this pose? The third thing is the key muscles in action. What muscles are working? What muscles are lengthening? The fourth thing is the key joints in action. The fifth is any modifications or contraindications. In other words, conditions or scenarios that students might have that might make it um, unsafe on some level for them to do the pose. The next thing is things to look for as a teacher, anatomy challenges, uh, red flags, you might call them. And then the last thing is speaking to mind, spirit, and attitude. And this starts to get into a little more of the feeling aspect of the pose or speaking um, in a way using cues that tap into maybe the more spiritual side, the more somatic side uh, that a particular pose can help us tap into. So today we're only focusing on the physical cues or the key actions. But if you're looking for the full breakdown that I just went over, an easy way is to get my anatomy manual. You can purchase it right on my website, barebonesyoga.com, and it gives you the format just as I broke it down to you just now, uh, those key pieces for each of the fundamental poses. And you can get it on the website, uh, barebonesyoga.com on the books page, and it's just $65. I'll include the link in the show notes on my website for this episode so you can buy one. And let me also say that there are, in my opinion, different kinds of cues. And again, to find out more about these in detail, listen to episode seven. In that, I talk about the four kinds of cues. Action cues, which provide a one, which is providing a one or two word action the student can do. Alignment cues, which talk to the shape of the pose anatomical cues, which bring in the actual anatomy that is applicable, and then feeling-based cues, 
which are more found in restorative type classes, although you might find them in general classes. These are words that suggest how a student might feel or offer them opportunities to tap into how they feel. Because of course, it's always tricky to suggest how someone could feel or should feel. We don't really wanna be doing that. So we really wanna be looking for opportunities to tap into how they feel, as well as in classes that involve words that are a bit less specific and actionable. So for the pose breakdown, I'm gonna go over a couple of postures and I wanna start out with warrior one. So some of this is gonna be the direct cue and then I'll explain a little bit about some of the cues that I'm giving you. So warrior one, let's pretend, let's imagine we're entering this posture from downward dog. So here we go. Step your right foot forward, root your back heel down and reach up. Okay, so I'll say that again. Step your right foot forward, root your back heel down and reach up. So notice that it's a three-step action-focused cue. Now, now that you've said that, you can give them a second and you can proceed. Give them a little bit more. Root into your feet, draw your right hip back and press your left hip forward. Now notice here, you're helping them center their hips by cueing to their feet because that's where the centering's coming from. It's much more effective to cue the centering from their feet versus their hips because the feet are the prime mover. If you notice some students can't center easily, think about making this suggestion. Turn your back foot in a bit to help you center your hips. Now notice, I didn't say square your hips, which can jolt a student into forcing the action. The word square is a kind of a harsh word in a way. When you think about a square, it has pointy edges, right? When you think about a circle, it's more circular, right? It's more round. So when people hear certain words, it can create a very harsh action. And in my experience, the word square creates a very immediate, very specific action, and one that you probably don't want people to do when both of their feet are planted into the ground. So I cued to turn the back foot in versus using more complex instructions that refer to things like turning in your back foot a certain number of degrees or turning in your back foot as if it's a hand on the clock and you're moving it to one o'clock, something along those things, those lines. I mean, remember, the easier we can make it for them to get it, the better. Now, now that you've addressed the feet and the pelvis, what's next, right? Pelvis meaning hips. So they're already reaching up. So maybe you can add in one thing that reinforces that action or provides correction. So let's say you see a number of people with bent arms or arms that are in front of their head. You could say, try opening your hands beyond shoulder width, or you could say, make your arms a wide V shape. And this will encourage students to take a more upright stance and help people who have internally rotated their shoulders. So that's that all too familiar hunching shape. And that hunching shape can show up as they try to flex their shoulders, uh, i.e. reach their arms up in the air. So that's your warrior one. So let me just kind of go through the cueing part. So 
step your right foot forward, root your back heel down and reach up. Now, turn your back foot in a bit to help you center your hips. If you're finding that centering is not happening easily, just turn that back foot in a little bit. As you reach your arms up in the air, spread your fingers wide and try taking your hands further apart than your shoulders. Take three deep breaths, right? So that, I think you kind of get a sense of it and you'll of course make it your own, but that's one approach and some of the logic behind the cues. All right, so let's move on to warrior two. All right, warrior two. Step your right foot forward, root your feet, and turn your chest to the left. Set your gaze forward over your arm and reach your arms out wide. Even the arm you can't see, can you make it the same level as your front arm? Now, just a note, I like to add this part in because it challenges their proprioception. That sense of where their limbs are in space, even the ones they can't see. So let's proceed with the cue, the cues. Stack your front knee over your heel. So I want you to just note that's an alignment cue, right? That's just about the shape. Stack your front knee over your heel and center your kneecap. Notice that as you turn your chest to the left, your kneecap might sway that way too. For, so centering here can be helpful. Now I just want to take a little pause uh, here to, to note that the cue to center the kneecap, the logic behind that lies in the anatomy. So when we think about the quadriceps, the quadriceps quad meaning four. So we've got four parts of the quadriceps muscle in general. So four heads of the quads, all converging on the patellar tendon. And you can kind of feel if you palpate down uh, the front of your thigh, you can feel that tendon as the heads of the uh, quadriceps insert on the patellar tendon and i.e. the patella, the kneecap itself. And so the logic here is that as people allow that kneecap in warrior two to slide more medially uh, towards the big toe side, the inner part of the thigh, there can be some unequal length in the uh, quadriceps in the different aspects of it. And so centering the kneecap centers that bone, the patella, straight ahead and promotes equal length and strength in, uh, in the different heads of the quads. So that's the anatomical basis. Now, you may get a question from a student every once in a while, hey, why do you ask us to center our kneecap? And this is why it's really important that when you give an anatomically based cue, you know why. What is the why behind the cue? And that's a big, big theme for me um, as I work with teachers and share different content like this around the whys, because I really want teachers to be able to speak powerfully, uh, clearly, and with confidence. And that comes from knowing the why versus just parroting what we hear from other teachers or even what we hear maybe from someone we've trained with but we didn't ask the why question. And so we're just kind of making that assumption, that leap of faith in a way that, well, they must know, you know, they're um, more experienced than me. So I'm just gonna go out and repeat what they taught me. 
And so again, I think there's um, a lack of understanding there. And that can, at times, I know because I've been there, translate to a lack of confidence. So in all of the teaching that I do in all these different mediums, whether it's here on the podcast or in the blog or the Facebook videos or my online courses, I'm always looking to share the why. And I encourage you to ask questions if you hear me talking about certain things and not giving you the why behind it. So getting back to warrior two here. So we talked about centering the kneecap. So that little cue um, about the kneecap and the anatomical basis behind it, if you feel comfortable sharing that, go ahead and share it. Otherwise, just ask them to center their kneecap. So the next piece, stack your shoulders over your hips and take a few deep breaths. Now, one other thing to watch for in this pose is the back foot turning out. I'm not quite sure why this is, right after I talked to you about the why a second ago, but it's just one of those curious things that happens a lot in this posture is that students will come into warrior two, the back foot will turn out. The front foot will be straight ahead, but the back foot will turn out. And I encourage you to watch people over the next few weeks as you're teaching and watch that back foot as they step into warrior two. I'd say half my classes almost all the time turn that back foot out. Now, let's explore this a little bit more. In warrior two, the pelvis is turning, in this case, right foot forward, turning to the left. But the hip joints are doing two different things. The front hip, that's the hip with the bent knee, is externally rotating. And the back hip, that's the straight leg side, is slightly internally rotating. So in order for that to happen, the back foot has to turn in a bit. If I turn that back foot out, my back hip is going to externally rotate. It has to. If you think about the kinetic chain idea that the body is um, comprised of a kind of a series of links in a chain, and as we act on one part of the chain, it has effects further up or down the chain. So if we picture someone in warrior two, the lowest part of the chain uh, on the left side is that back foot. If that foot turns open, move up the chain, knee, hip, left hip, that hip's gonna turn open right? There's no way I can turn my foot out and turn my hip in. It just, you know, can't happen. So think of it this way. If both, if you were in warrior two and both feet were turned out and you bent the back leg, you'd be in a squat. So you want to encourage people to turn that back foot in a little bit. All right. So let's kind of pull this all together coming into warrior two. So let's imagine, again, we're coming into it from downward dog. So step the right foot forward, stack the knee over the heel, reach the arms out wide. Align the back arm with the front arm, even though your gaze is forward. See if you can get a sense of that back arm in space. Stack the shoulders over the hips, align the kneecap to the front of the room, if you feel that back hip is turned open a little bit, turn the back foot in slightly. See if you can discern the difference between the front hip opening up and the back hip slightly turning in. So I may have just kind of recapped it a little differently than as I first laid it out to you. I'm actually 
just speaking right from the heart here spontaneously, but I think you get a sense here of, of the cues. So again, I encourage you as you're listening to this to not only try it in your own body as I'm walking through the cues, but comment on the podcast and let me know if you have questions about these cues or if they don't feel right in your body or any comments in general. All right, so let's go into chair pose. So one thing to preface this with, we're often cueing to chair from halfway lift, as in, you know, something like lift halfway up, bend your knees and come into chair. So one of the things I've noticed is that when students enter the pose that way, they tend to kind of hunch a lot more and hyperextend their tailbone. So if you think about hyperextension of the tailbone, we're talking about being in a chair pose and leaning, uh, kind of pushing the belly forward. So you get that big sway back in the lumbar spine, the lower back and the pelvis, the, the, um, the tailbone is pushed back a lot. So you're kind of in chair, that big sway back, kind of the, the tailbone is, you know, big arch in the low back, the tailbone's jutting back. So what I often do at the start uh, in the beginning of practice is have them come up to standing. Their arms are already up in the air and cue them from standing to quote, come into chair pose. So that way they can moderate the depth of the pose better without a lot of excessive movement through the lumbar spine and the pelvis. And this also can really help them keep um, a more broader shape in the uh, chest. Because again, just like in warrior one, the shoulders are flexed, the arms are up in the air. For people who have tight internal rotators of the shoulders, so here we're talking about um, part of the rotator cuff uh, subscapularis, talking about pec major, pec minor, coracobrachialis, all of these internal rotators. As those muscles are tight, as the shoulders flex, i.e. the arms reach up to the sky, the student's gonna hunch through the upper body. So if you can have them come up to standing, reach up high, come into chair, they can begin to moderate the depth of the pose because they're coming into it from standing up versus coming into it with the knees already bent. So this is kind of, again, just one approach. Sweep up fold forward, lift halfway up, bow, reach up to standing, keep the arms high, now bend your knees, chair pose. So you can get into it from standing in a variety of ways. That's just one example. The point is, try it a few times first from standing. So now they're in the pose. So now you can cue to other things. So you could say, Bring the inner, inner edges of your feet together as you sink down. Squeeze your inner thighs together. Center your knees to the front of the room. Drop your tailbone towards your heels. Now notice there, I'm not saying extend the tailbone out because then I'm gonna get that same uh, lordotic spine, sway back lumbar spine that I was talking about before that was problematic. So here, you know, I'm just, asking them to drop the tailbone towards the heels. Not asking them to tuck, I'm not asking them to stick it out, I'm just asking them to simply drop the tailbone towards the heels. So these are all action-based cues. 
So let's talk through a little bit about the pelvis here because there are sometimes cues to tuck the tail and to slightly contract your abdominal muscles. So what's happening here? So in chair, your pelvis is slightly tipped forward, which is an anterior tilt. If they hear a word like tuck, what happens is, if you remember I was talking about square your hips earlier, if they hear a word like tuck, what happens is they really get that word. That word hits their nervous system and they will do that for sure. They'll tuck their tailbone under and now they're posteriorly tilting the pelvis, which is not where you want them to be, right? If you don't say tuck, but instead you say contract your abdominal muscles, what muscles do you mean? Right? So again, you know, here we are in that place where we're using cues and we may not understand the anatomical basis behind them. And now I'm peeling back these layers for you. So my guess is if you say contract your abdominal muscles, you mean the rectus abdominis. So this is the muscle that runs up the midline of your body from your sternum. Well, it starts at your sternum and ends on your pubic bone. And as you contract it in that Uddiyana Bandha lock, so there's the yogic term, right? Because of its attachment to your pubic bone, you'll move your pelvis back, right? See what I did there? I went from the action-based cue to some alignment to the anatomy. This is, again, the linking I'm suggesting you be able to do as you learn anatomy and start to work it into your teaching. The idea is that even if you don't use the anatomically based cues on a particular day, you still know the rationale behind the cues, which lives in the anatomy. So now for the arms. What's happening with the arms here? So the shoulders are in flexion, right? Uh, arms are up in the air. Shoulders, though, are in flexion, shoulder joint, and external rotation. And the elbows are in extension, so the arms are straight. What muscles will limit that external rotation? So I talked about them a few minutes ago. So most likely the pectorals and the subscapularis, which is one of the four muscles of the rotator cuff. If these muscles that are internal rotators are tight, the student will internally rotate the shoulders and chair. This is again, where we could use a wider hands position to help that. And what was that earlier pose uh, we used it in? Well, that was uh, warrior one. So in summary, you could say, sweep up to standing, keep your arms high and squat low, chair pose. If you feel your tailbone sticking out, slightly contract your abdominals, but not so much you tuck your tail. Reach your arms wide if that feels like it gives you more space to space to breathe. And notice I didn't say reach your arms out wide if you feel like your shoulders are tight. I don't know. I have kind of a, a funny sense of kind of saying things like if you feel tight, because I think that oversimplifies sensations that students can have in their body and makes them equate bad sensation must mean tight muscle. And that's not always true because an uncomfortable sensation in a muscle doesn't always mean it's tight. It could mean it's weak. 
And so I think, again, this is where we get a little loosey-goosey around using terms that start to fall into the anatomy arena. And we start suggesting to people how, not so much how they should feel or how they could feel, but we start suggesting to people that every sensation in the body that's an uncomfortable one muscularly must equal a tight muscle. And this is oftentimes where the incorrect assumption comes into play in that many, many of your students are gonna think the answer to all their physical ailments in the body, and I don't mean all their physical ailments, I mean these kinds of sensations, is to stretch. And that is not the case. Many times what people need to do is strengthen muscles. And that could be, the basis could be a muscular issue, it could be a joint issue, right? If you think about people that have neck problems, many times they don't need to lengthen the muscles there, they need to strengthen them. So I can't impress this upon you enough. And the more you learn about anatomy, the more you'll begin to see that when students come up to you after class with a question, about a sensation they're having in their body that is uncomfortable, their first go-to place is, can you show me something to do to stretch this? You know, and this is, you know, I, I think we need to promote a more balanced, um, I don't even want to say nuanced, but a more balanced approach to, you know, quote unquote rehab, right? And in a way that's really part of what we're doing here. We are not clinicians, but the reason I'm using that word rehab is helping a muscle, helping a part of the body, helping an area in the body come to a more balanced point. And that does oftentimes involve rehabilitation. And you will find in case, uh, you will find in fact that many of your students, when they come to you with problems after class, some of them are in physical therapy. And that is a perfect opportunity to say, show me what kinds of exercises your physical therapist is doing with you. And I'll bet if they show you two or three things, you're gonna see some are focused on length, some are focused on strength, and you're probably gonna be able to come up with one or two postures for each exercise. And so you can give them a couple of poses to do that supplement what their physical therapist has recommended for them. All right, so we got one more posture to do. Downward facing dog. Okay, so for downward dog, it's an inversion. The head is lower than the heart. So let's just think about the dynamics of the pose. With no counteraction by the student, where is all the weight going to go? It's gonna go into their shoulders, their elbows, and their wrists. Also, what part of the body are they going to use the most in this pose? Their arms, but what other parts of the body might they call into it to take some of the effort off the arms? Well, they could call into play the core and the legs. So with that as a backdrop, let's come into downward dog from child's pose. Reach your arms forward, press away from the floor and lift up onto your knees. Lift your knees and set your gaze back at your hands. And let me just say as a side note, this is important because it's gonna anchor their vision. Begin to press away from the floor with a little more effort and if it's helpful, bend your knees a little as you do so rather than locking your knees. If you still feel a lot of weight in the arms, move the hands back a bit to improve your leverage. Squeeze your belly button into your spine and press your thighs back. Take three deep breaths. So that's pretty much it. <laughs> there are a lot of other things you could say for sure, but remember, 
when they're upside down, you don't have a lot of time to get to the point because it's a hard position for them to be in. So you've got to be quick, essential, and clear. So let me speak to a couple things, the shoulders. <laughs> so for some reason, teachers love to speak to the shoulders and the shoulder blades when cueing downward dog. Let me suggest to you that if you are unclear about the anatomy, don't feel the pressure to do so. And that pretty much goes for all the poses. Stick with the alignment and action cues and you're going to make, trust me, you're going to make a great impact on your student's experience. But if you'd like to delve into that, you'll need to know the position of the shoulders, right? And you'll need to be able to make a distinction between shoulder joint and scapula, shoulder blades. So the shoulders are flexed and externally rotated. Now, if that's confusing, think about the opposite. Extended, so shoulders extended like an airplane, and internally rotated, like when you're hunching. Now, when you look at the opposite movement, it's easy to see how this pose does not have either of those. Now, indeed, your students might be hunching in the pose, but you don't want them to. So this is where that cue to roll the inner eyes of the elbows forward comes into play. This is the cue where you trigger more external rotation by activating the muscles of the rotator cuff that do that the teres minor and the infraspinatus. If you remember earlier, I was talking about a tight internal rotator blocking people from reaching their arms straight up in the air. That uh, muscle was the subscapularis. So now we've talked about three muscles of the rotator cuff. Now I'm talking about the two that are on the back of the body that are external rotators, teres minor, infraspinatus. They both insert, they both end on the humerus, the upper arm bone. So that's why if you cue to their arms, and to move their humerus, right? When you say to them in downward dog, roll the inner eyes and the elbows forward or roll the biceps forward, you're not literally saying roll your humerus, roll the medial aspect of your humerus forward, but that's essentially what you want them to do. And in order to do that, they have to be using a muscle and here they're actually using two. They're using teres minor and infraspinatus to externally rotate the shoulders the resulting action is the inner eyes of the elbows or the biceps roll towards the front of the room or whatever you're gonna say. And so that is going to get them a little more out of the hunch, out of the internal rotation, into more of an externally rotated position. So what's something you would not wanna say? And again, please, please, please. I really actually don't even wanna say it that harshly because remember, there is a context here. I am definitely not of the ilk where I'm going to go around and saying, don't, where I'm going to go around and say, don't say this, don't say that. I actually do not like those articles on Facebook you see written by yoga outlets where they say, 10 cues, I wouldn't say anymore. You know, everything has context, people, right? So be careful when you go out and you say, I would never say this or never say that. And plus, I'm not here to shame anybody into stuff they say, right? And sometimes it comes from being uninformed and it's unintended. And also, sometimes some things we say are, you know, okay in, in context. Sometimes they're not. But again, in the bigger picture, these are cues we're using in a yoga pose. And unless it's something that is almost for sure going to injure somebody immediately on the spot, um, you know, we can move on and we can still help people have a good experience. So again, I, I want to just kind of throw that caveat 
in there. So one thing I, I would, um, I would, no, I don't want to say not. One thing I would refrain possibly from saying is drop your shoulder blades. Okay. And again, remember we talked about tuck and we talked about square. Drop is another word that bam, that is going to hit their nervous system. When you hear drop in regards to a body part, um, especially shoulder blades, you know what that means and you're going to do that action. So you, it would be um, difficult or I would not recommend saying drop your shoulder blades because the shoulders are in flexion, right? We talked about flexion in regards to warrior one, arms reaching up to the sky, just because they're in downward dog and the hands are on the ground, it is still shoulder flexion, right? Remember, anatomical actions are anatomical actions regardless of the body's relationship to gravity. So here we are in shoulder flexion, okay? When you flex your shoulders, you also upwardly rotate your shoulder blades, your scapula. So this is now a different body part. We're not talking about shoulder joint, shoulder joints in flexion. We're talking about scapula. Scapula are upwardly rotating. So this is different from just elevating the shoulder blades, elevating the scapula. It's actually like they spin a little bit on your back because they're mobile. You know, when you see a skeleton, the scapula is just glued on there and they don't have mobility. But in your body, <laughs> thank God, the scapula move. So they spin a little bit on your back. So as you flex your shoulder, your scapula upwardly rotates. It swings a little out to the side to give the head of your humerus uh, space to move so it doesn't jam up uh, in the joint. And you can flex your shoulder. You can reach your arm up to the sky. So if you ask people to drop their shoulder blades or slide your shoulder blades away from your ears, you're actually interfering with joint congruency. And by that, I mean you're interfering with the connection between the head of the humerus and the cup of the scapula, the glenoid fossa, and that's the joint itself. And the last thing you wanna be doing when people are weight-bearing on their arms is mess with the connection between their upper arm bone and their scapula right? Because they're weight-bearing. You don't want to even do it when their arms are up in the air in warrior one, but you definitely don't want to do it when they're weight-bearing. So that's why I said at the very beginning, if you're unclear, don't feel like you need to be fancy and talk about anatomy. If you're unclear about it, just tell them the action stuff. Press away. Um, you know, hug the belly button in, press the thighs back, bend the knees a little bit, right? So these are all good places to start your teaching as you're learning about the anatomy. So I think this is a good place to stop. <laughs> I know there are a lot of poses to go through. And if you're enjoying this kind of, you know, cues lab, pose breakdown, um, comment to the web, comment to the podcast, wherever you're listening, just add a comment. And I'll continue to do these kinds of things. Um, as I said, my anatomy manual will walk you through this and more for each pose. So please visit the episode page on my uh, website for this episode. You'll see the link. I'll just put it right in there to purchase the manual. And you can use that as a resource as you're learning not only the cues, but the anatomy. So what's our action plan here? What can you do as a next step if you're wondering how to build up a bigger repertoire of solid cues? 
So the first thing is get really comfortable with action and alignment cues before you bring in the anatomy. Okay, that's one. The next thing is teach from the ground up, right? It doesn't really make a lot of sense to teach from the top down when you think about that kinetic chain, that movement chain, that chain of action kind of theory. It's helpful to talk from their feet up to their hands um, in poses, especially standing poses, but really any pose, um, because they can correct uh, misalignment happening further up the chain if they correct the alignment at the base first. The next thing is keep cues simple and think of formatting each pose to three to five actions tops. The next thing is record yourself teaching and listen back. Uh, practice with yourself, right? How cool would that be? Practice with yourself and see how your own words land on your body. I did this a lot when I was a newer teacher. It was really, it was really interesting. Keep watching your students. Do not put a mat down to practice on. Do not practice with your class. Walk around, watch them, see how your cues land on their body. Maybe try it one more time in terms of cueing. If it doesn't um, work, just move on to the next thing. So here are three specific ways that I can help you further. The first thing is set up a consult with me for a half hour call. We'll go over what your biggest challenges are when it comes to learning anatomy and I'll create a customized plan for you. Set it up by emailing me on my website, barebonejoga.com. There's a link right there, contact me. The next thing is review my webinar on cues. And again, I'm gonna include the link in the show notes for this episode. And then the third thing is buy my anatomy manual. It's, it's a very reasonable investment, um, under hundred bucks. And go through the poses section, try it out, Try out some of my cues and make notes afterwards about how they felt, how they worked out, and make notes you know, for the things that you liked. So we're at the end of the podcast. I want to hear from you. I've added a couple of you know, references along the way to comments, but please comment wherever you're listening, add a comment. Visit the podcast page on my website for this episode. See all the links I've talked about. And thank you so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.